Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Woohoo! Woohoo! I'm Justin Burt, joined tonight by wonderful producer Sydney Engel. Sydney, say hi. How's it going? Hi, it's going great. Uh, it was a joy to do this episode with you. Um, it was a lot of fun. We had a great guest tonight, Dr. Shalani Shaw, to discuss environmental issues and their impact on kids. But before we go into the episode, can you remind us about the show? Absolutely. So we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the field to bring clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answering lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Tonight, we had a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Shalini Shah. Dr. Shah is a board-certified pediatrician, environmental medicine physician, and assistant director for the Boston Children's Hospital Pediatric Environmental Health Center and Region 1 Pediatric Environmental Health Specialty Unit. She provides clinical care in primary care pediatrics and environmental health clinics for patients with environmental exposures. She is passionate about the intersection of the climate crisis, environmental justice, and children's health. Dr. Shaw teaches us about the link between climate change and health outcomes, the role of environmental justice, and what you or any other person can do to help patients in any environment. So without further ado, let's get to it. Um, Dr. Shaw, thanks so much for for coming on to the show. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. As we do with all of our guests, we're kind of an informal group, and I wanted to make sure, is it okay if we call you by your first name, Shalini, throughout the episode? Yes, absolutely. I appreciate it. Thank you. We're, we're friends. This is great. And I would love to get to know a little bit more about you. Our audience would love to get to know you. Can you give us just kind of a one-liner introduction to describe yourself and maybe something about yourself outside of the field of medicine? Yeah, of course. Um, So I'm a first-generation Indian-American New Englander, lover of nature and family. And despite identifying as an anxious introvert, I'm actively trying to push myself to try new things like podcasts and others. So I'm really happy to be here. Professionally, I'm a pediatrician and environmental physician and have been passionate about climate change and environmental justice issues for a long time. And thinking, how do we integrate this into our clinical practice and medical education? So that's kind of academic focus. I love that. And I think this is going to be such a great episode for so many reasons, because it's something I think that we, we talked about a lot. But I will also say that I actually very much resonate with the the introvert. I feel like the podcast, I uh, try to be very like outgoing and, and uh, effusive. And it sometimes, you know, the energy pull, the, it, it takes the effort. <laughs> so kindred spirits with the with the introversion and, and happy to, to have you here uh, with us. I know it can be a lot. <laughs> so another question I'd love to ask you is, can you just give us a piece of advice that you've received at some point along your journey as a physician, um, something that you received as a learner or as a teacher or along the way in your career? Yeah, I think I have had different moments in my career where I felt a little lost and like I couldn't figure out how each step was stacking on top of one another, especially in trying to find support and my space in the environmental world. And advice that um, really resonated with me was like, it's really okay if your journey is not point A to point B. You really have your whole career to figure it out and like leaning into those detours or your passion can be some of the most rewarding parts of your life and can then connect back to this bigger picture. So when I'm feeling lost or like, I don't know where how this will all play out long term, I think I always kind of come back to that. Like, it's okay if it's not, you know, unidirectional. Um, and it's a good reminder to me because I can often be type A. So it helps me out. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> me too. I mean, I, that resonates so much with me where I feel like the detours sometimes seem to be like leading off this big life path that you have like imagined. And the detours are like the good stuff a lot of times. You know, those are the, the cool opportunities that pop up. And I still struggle with it. Yeah, like I felt like I was in training so often I would like look back on other examples of personal statements and other things and be like, how do all these people have such rich stories where like everything kind of comes together? And then I think the more you work and just take it day by day, you realize that like you're also doing that. It's just kind of one foot in front of the other. Totally. When I think like in medicine, a lot of us, it's just such a linear path sometimes for like the default 
that we just did spec like okay this is the next step and then this step and then promotion or whatever and especially after training i feel like the the world kind of opens up in all these different paths in the woods and so it's a, a very exciting career in medicine but can also be kind of overwhelming and daunting where where mm-hmm. there's like all these different paths so I love that. that. That very much resonates with me. And I, I love kind of normalizing that there's different ways to be a good physician and to be a good medical practitioner and, and do important work. One thing, if you have a book or movie rec, I always love using this podcast to fill my library and to figure out my next reading list. I'm a big Kindle fan. And do you have a, a book or, or any content consumption that you think every trainee or person in medicine should should read or be exposed to? Um, the Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down is really beautifully written um, by Anne Fadima, and it follows this Hmong family's journey as they're navigating the American healthcare system with their child with epilepsy and really explores that cross-cultural medicine complexity. I did my undergraduate at UMass Lowell where there's a huge Cambodian population. And so I remember I read that in my senior year and ended up doing my thesis kind of working within the Eastern medical centers there and learning more about how to integrate kind of Eastern Western medicine together to connect with the community. Wow, I've heard that book recommended a couple of times, but never been someone who has such like a hands-on experience with that population and that experience. And I think that's, that's really awesome. And then as a pediatrician, I always have kind of a children's book or series I'm leaning into. Um, if you haven't read Big Panda and Tiny Dragon by James Norberry, um, it's so beautiful. Um, each kind of page or snippet, it's kind of based on like Buddhist philosophy, these unlikely friends that come together and navigate the seasons of the year together and really learn from one another and are paired with really beautiful watercolor illustrations and never fails to fill my cup when I'm having a hard day. <laughs> This is so cool. I put it, I pulled it up online and it, uh, yeah, it looks like a very beautiful book and I've never seen a book on Amazon with such positive reviews of so many five-star ratings. This is, um, I'm going to have to check this out. This is great. Yeah, it's really, it's really, really lovely. And it just reminds you to center yourself and be present, which I think is something we can all strive for each day. Absolutely. Very core, important values. Well, this is great. I This has been a pleasure getting to know you a little bit more, and I'm excited to kind of dive into some content. Um, Sydney, do you want to get us started into our first case and some questions? Yeah, absolutely. So recognizing that this is a episode that is focused not on so much a specific clinical diagnosis, our case is a little bit different, um, but here's our first case. Kate Advo is a MS4 who recently matched to Cashlack Southwest for her pediatric residency. She read that the city she is moving to had more than 50 days of temperatures above 110 degrees in the past year. Coming from the Northeast, she has limited experience talking to people about managing extreme heat, and she is worried about how climate change might further impact her patients. She reaches out to you, one of her mentors, to better understand the role of climate change in pediatric health. So just to kind of start generally, can you just talk a a little bit about the ways in which climate change is projected to change our physical environment in the upcoming decades? Yeah, so just so we're kind of all speaking the same language, climate change is really this long-term alteration of the Earth's weather patterns, um, including shifts in temperature, precipitation, and other climate-related factors, really driven by human activity that's released fossil fuels and greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And those trap heat into our planet, leading to global warming. And we are already seeing that happening, but that's projected to get worse over time given our continued emissions. So with that, we anticipate seeing extreme heat, meaning more frequent and severe heat waves, extreme weather and altered precipitation, so like floods, hurricanes, severe storms, droughts, um, as well as worsening air quality, warming and acidification of our oceans, and shifts of agriculture and loss of biodiversity. And that kind of leads to different downstream things, which I think we'll talk about today. And I would love to hear about the relationship between climate change and health, because I feel like in the news and in different spheres, you hear about climate change, you hear about health disparities, you think about health insurance and and people's environmental exposures, but sometimes the link between climate change and pediatric health is sometimes lost on me. And so can you maybe kind of help guide, you know, what do we know about the relationship between climate change and health in general? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the more we experience the climate crisis in real time, the more we're realizing that the climate crisis is truly a health crisis. And it's less that climate change is like one separate pillar of something that we need to be thinking about in medicine or all of these other spheres within our societies, but instead kind of a blanket thing that we need to be thinking about everywhere. So in my head, I kind of think of climate as really like the COVID we can see coming, right? Like we know this is happening. We know it's going to impact large communities in different ways and disproportionate ways. And like, we really need to be responding to that in a more proactive way. And kind of in the most recent um, intergovernmental panel on climate change report, they actually describe climate as like a code red for humanity so that it's really this public health crisis um, and affecting us in many different ways, um, especially our children. And I would love to, you know, learn a little bit more about that. When I have a, you know, a child in my clinic, you know, how are things I should be be thinking about this kid? And, you know, especially someone from, frankly, you know, a place of privilege where I have air conditioning, you know, I have, um, I live near Whole Foods. Um, What are, you know, some of those tangible impacts that these weather changes or um, challenges to the food supply and things, how are those things affecting my patients? Yeah, so um, I get this question all the time, and I think it's hard for us to see kind of directly, but I think of climate impacts on health in broad categories that you can kind of dive into over time. So heat, as you mentioned, is really one of them, certainly in the forefront of my mind here in the Northeast, which is interesting with the clinical vignette because it Kate's moving to this different residency in the Southwest and now thinking like I need to worry about extreme heat. But the reality is, is that we need to be thinking about this everywhere, especially in the Northeast where this is kind of a newer concern. So there's the risks of heat related illnesses and other things, respiratory wise, air pollution and allergens, mental health impacts, extreme weather impacts, and then kind of two more broad buckets of infectious diseases, as well as this paired concept of malnutrition and food security or insecurity for that matter and what's happening as a result of climate. Those are obviously some pretty big buckets, some of which immediately I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, there's going to be more extreme heat. I think some of the other ones, things like uh, the vector-borne diseases or the mental health things, it's it takes a little bit more thinking through the process. Can you dive a little bit into, into some of those and exactly how the projection from, okay, changing environmental temperature to this particular health impact? Yeah, so mental health is an interesting one because there's kind of many facets to it, which I guess is pretty standard for all mental health things nowadays. But one, with extreme weather, we see the destruction associated with that and the disruption to society and people's homes and their livelihood has been associated with adverse health outcomes in children and adults, including PTSD, anxiety, and depression. So among children exposed to extreme weather events, more than one third receive new mental health diagnoses in the aftermath of that. And more than 10% have been shown to have persistence of symptoms a year or more after the event. So these things that can be so disruptive have lasting mental health impacts. And we've seen that kind of after Hurricane Katrina and other extreme weather events. There's been a lot of research that has shown that that really impacts you and it's long lasting. The other concept in mental health is emerging or newer is this concept of eco-anxiety, which is this fear of environmental doom and catastrophe, recognizing that the climate crisis is here and feels like this insurmountable problem. Um, This is especially prevalent in youth and adolescent patients. And the more our children are exposed to media cycles and seeing climate-related news and seeing it within their own lives, the more that they're really worrying about that. So it's important that we're aware of that this is an anxiety that's happening, screening for that, and able to sit in these conversations with kids to help support them. Is there a specific screening tool? Or what do you, when you say screening for eco-anxiety, I mean, I think about what I do in my well-adolescent visits, and, and we do a ton of screeners. We do, you know, all of the different screenings for a ton of different things, but I don't think that we're screening for eco-anxiety, or do you expect that would just kind of show up when you're doing a PHQ? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. And I think providers are stretched so thin with screeners. So we want what we add to be meaningful. Um, And I think the beauty of primary care is that we often have these longitudinal relationships with patients. So being able to 
kind of start to weave the climate conversation into other aspects of caring for patients. You can also read the room and see, including adolescents or teens or young adults in those conversations, see where how they're feeling about these things can um, you know, be something you explore in that space. I don't think that we have validated screening tools yet for some of these things, but I know as a fellow, I worked on um, with an amazing group in the Primary Care Asthma Center at my program and um, with my partner, Marissa Hopman and others in the environmental team on like developing an environmental screener for our asthma patients to ask some of these questions and assess for climate vulnerability up front. So I think we're making headspace there and learning from our populations. I think I make an assumption in a severe event only affecting the mental health of someone who is displaced because their home was destroyed or that something traumatic um, happened, you know, because the tornado has again really displaced their, their housing status. But it sounds like the impact of some of these severe events really affect a large proportion of children. Is that because there's just so much the scope of the damage of a lot of these increasing natural weather events are displacing a lot of people? Or is it just as you are developing as a child, seeing floods, seeing tornadoes, sensing this crisis in your community itself uh, leads to fear or anxiety or, you know, I guess, well, when you mentioned the kind of mental health components, is it from displacement or is it from, you mentioned financial, you know, what are, what are the things that are really the traumatic consequences, I guess, of severe weather events? Yeah. I mean, I think that's helpful. I think there's kind of, like you said, that more obvious, like we're displaced and starting all over that can be extremely traumatizing or injuries sustained during that time um, that can be very lasting or the new cycle that you're seeing in the aftermath of that and feeling like this is going to happen over and over can be very anxiety inducing. But also children really rely on their caregivers and routines in society and being able to go to their school, connect with their peers, have stable educational support, you know, their recreational activities, seeing their parents stressed about perhaps finances associated with the loss for that or their ability to go to work and care for their children or things like that. In addition to really just disruption and access to everyday things, um, I think that's where the climate health question though very real, starts to feel more indirect, right? Like it's not as simple as it's too hot and I'm now dehydrated. But when you follow these things upstream, they're really linked to this changing climate and the instability associated with that. And I think children seek stability and need that for their, you know, mental health and growth and development. I think that's huge. And I appreciate the way that you framed it in terms of just how children see the world in general and perhaps the needs of children that are a little bit different than adults psychologically. I'd love, though, to jump back a little bit. So, you know, you said, okay, obviously, like you have more extreme heat, you're going to have more issues of dehydration. Can you talk about some of the other physical impacts that we should maybe be thinking about as healthcare providers? Yeah, of course. So, um, I mean, heat is one of them where during extreme heat events or when you're outside kind of with the pediatric lens, athletes, children playing in the outdoors, what are they exposed to with a changing climate? So the risk of dehydration to heat illness to heat stroke kind of versus heat exhaustion, that spectrum um, is certainly, you know, direct physical manifestation manifestation of climate. We're also seeing like longer, stronger, more severe allergy seasons based on kind of the levels of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere and the pollen and ragweed that's produced as a result. So those with asthma or severe allergies are more vulnerable there. We're seeing kind of a deterioration in air quality, especially on the East Coast. I think kind of similar to the question of heat, you know, we're not used to thinking about wildfires and the smoke associated with them, but that was very in our face this summer. And unfortunately, I think this is just the beginning of seeing these large scale burnings and deterioration of our air quality. And what does that mean 
for pregnant populations, for growing children, for those with baseline respiratory disease are kind of physical manifestations of that. And I know another one of the budgets you mentioned were, were the vector-borne diseases. Would love to hear you kind of go into detail on that of how climate change is affecting vector-borne disease. Yeah, so Lyme disease is the most prevalent vector-borne disease in the U.S., right? And the EPA really labels Lyme as a climate problem. If you look at distributions of Lyme disease geographically, we're seeing it spread, you know, further west and south, um, the distribution is spreading because as we have these altered precipitation cycles and lengthier warm seasons, you're seeing kind of changes in the lifespan, the vectors that are transmitting these diseases, kind of expanding their range or how long they're around for different things that may be more seasonal. The other thing with infectious disease is after extreme weather events, for example, if you have disruption to your water supply and now you have contamination of that, that can lead to different GI illness, malaria, these other things. So kind of thinking through what are the direct consequences of shifting temperature patterns and also the layered problems that come from unstable infrastructure because we're not resilient and ready for climate yet. Heavy. Um. I mean, I think that's the challenge with climate. And I feel like I myself oscillate between like being super engaged and ready to, you know, give my all and other times just feeling how heavy it is and how layered everything is and complicated it is. And I think just validating that like all of those emotions are valid and picking your one thing and moving forward, I think can bring us all to the right place. Yeah. And I, I do think as pediatric providers, we are in a kind of unique place to both have a voice in terms of trying to mitigate some of these things and also trying to protect our patients. So even though it's a heavy topic, I'm, I'm really glad we're talking about it. Yeah. And like speaking to that, health professionals are extremely trusted voices on climate. So they've done national surveys of the population and primary care providers have ranked very high among scientists and others um, and even higher in some cases to really speak to climate. So the public is trusting us to be educated and aware of the climate risks and being trusted messengers on that topic. And we also have the skills as physicians to translate very complex medical topics that are heavy or convoluted into things that will resonate with our patients and families and help protect their health. And so I think it's really our responsibility to be aware of these things and engage on them as they evolve in real time. Thanks for being a voice for that and for being here to kind of help us help other people to be that sort of voice. And I think later in this conversation, I would love to touch a little bit more on how we're messaging it to patients, how we're using our voice in other spaces. But thinking about these particular impacts that you were just talking about, the extreme heat, the changes in air quality, the changes in vector-borne disease patterns, the change in allergy seasons. Are there things that we as clinicians should be monitoring or teaching our patients to monitor or assessing for? Do you think that providers, just like how we maybe check the flu seasonality, should be checking the air quality index? Like, what are What's some practical implications of those things? Yeah, I think that's a great question and something a lot of people have been working really hard on, um, especially in pediatrics where we're so robust in our anticipatory guidance. Like, how do we update that to reflect the changes with climate? So I think you've already mentioned some of them, really sharing knowledge of things like the air quality index or pollen indices locally with our families so that those who are more vulnerable can know that that's available to them for them to check and recognize like, oh, the air quality is not as good today. Maybe I should avoid being out at XYZ time. Maybe I know I'm going to be outside for soccer practice, I'm going to make sure I have my albuterol inhaler with me so that I'm ready to do my rescue medicine for asthma. So kind of talking through those things. I think kind of in the clinical integration space, I kind of think of it also in different buckets. Like one, is it screening? So like, should we integrate some of these environmental concepts into regular screening? Like people who are food insecure, maybe we should have those patients be flagged as 
needing more support during, you know, disruptions to food supply and other things? Is it within anticipatory guidance? Is it that when patients are admitted to the hospital for a specific reason or coming in for a specific complaint, kind of highlighting for them, like, yes, this is happening at an increased rate um, due to the changing climate. These are ways you can protect yourself. Um, I think just kind of starting these conversations will get everyone more primed and prepared um, as a result. I would love to hear, you know, this is, this made so much sense to me and I admit is not something that I think about a lot or certainly advise patients on, for example, looking up air quality index, but they certainly could. Is this something that's like very early in the field of implementing this as a strategy or like, is there any evidence supporting using air quality index to guide some of these behavioral interventions as far as, you know, lower threshold for albuterol? Are there any, is there any evidence-based implementation right now of using this to uh, affect healthcare outcomes? I think we're working on it as a community, um, and I'm sure there are, and I don't necessarily have them right off the top of my head, but I think it's a good question you've raised, and also kind of, I think not everyone needs to be working in environmental health to apply this into their world, right? And so if you are a researcher or someone who's thinking about a project, kind of thinking about that climate layer to work into that, because I think there are so many more questions. Like right now, I think healthcare has really made a lot of strides in recognizing climate as a health issue and talking about this and trying to figure out the best ways to integrate it into clinical practice. But I think some of the questions do remain of like, what is the most effective intervention, for example, to protect people from extreme heat? Is it alerting systems that, you know, through your weather app and the use of heat indices? Is it population level control? Is it going to a cooling center? Are people using cooling centers? Like, there's so many more questions, you know, as things are changing. So the closer we can get to more evidence-based response, the better. Yeah. I I mean, it seems like, uh, you know, it's sad to say maybe, but almost an exciting time to be in the field and that there's more and more people talking about this, more and more people looking to it, coming up with this is the new reality. How can we um, minimize the uh, the effects on health outcomes? Yeah, and I think like the other piece um, for those who may not be integrating climate already is um, recognizing that it impacts like every specialty, every patient, especially those with chronic medical conditions. So it's another area where you can start to kind of shift your framework or add a climate layer is when you're doing like a medical reconciliation for patients um, or going through their chronic conditions, like how do those put them at risk or what do they need to know as climate as like an additional layer for that? So like those on psychiatric medications or nephrotoxic medications, they're at higher risk. It can affect your ability to deal with heat, whether that's your thermoregulation or kind of put you at greater risk for adverse effects from the meds you're on. And so we really have an obligation to know, like, what should we be advising people that are dealing with these things? And then, like, complex medical kiddos who are requiring, like, electronic equipment to meet their healthcare needs, um, being sure that they have emergency plans in place for extreme weather events and disruptions to their power supply. Things like that are all ways that we can kind of add a climate plug into work we're already doing. Wow. I had not ever thought about the idea of plugging it in with uh, medication reconciliation, but that makes so much sense. That's like a really interesting implementation. And obviously the the readiness, having a plan for in case of extreme weather events, probably, I mean, anybody probably needs some sort of plan in place. But of course, kids that are have more complex medical needs, that's going to be a, a more intense involved process. Um, I would love to hear if you have any more additional practical advice that you give patients and families about how to prepare for extreme heat, extreme weather events, how to reduce risk of vector-borne diseases. Like, What are some things that we can be proactively telling patients to do? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm going to put a small plug for um, resources we've developed as part of our program at Boston Children's and within our pediatric environmental health specialty unit for Region 1. We have climate prescriptions that kind of go through this. 
they touch upon the six topic areas that we've talked about here today, and they kind of highlight in patient-friendly terms, like what's the climate health link? What can you do to prepare yourself for that or to respond to that? And what are resources available to help with that? So that's a good resource if you are kind of engaged and ready to start tackling some of these conversations to help foster the conversation. But to answer your question, so for heat, I often tell families to avoid peak times of sun exposure where things are going to be the hottest. So for the Northeast, that's 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. in the summertime, um, making sure you have access to hydration and electrolytes, seeking shaded areas, taking frequent breaks, and looking up heat indices so that you know kind of what's your level of risk on a given day. Um, and then I usually pair whatever that guidance is of like, how can you prevent what may happen with, these are the signs of the health effect of that. So making sure families are aware of like, what are the symptoms that my child needs to see a health provider being extremely dehydrated? Like, what does that look like in a child of XYZ age and making sure that they know when to seek care? So kind of that model of thinking through kind of what's the worst case scenario? What will this look like? How can you prevent that from happening? And then if you are seeing signs of it, kind of what can you do to set yourself up for success? For vector-borne illness, um, especially with like Lyme here, wearing light colored clothing, using insect repellent um, that's been approved by the EPA, like DEET repellent, doing tick checks, knowing what kind of the ticks are in your area that you need to worry about so you know what you're looking for, um, as well as kind of educating around what are the physical manifestations of Lyme and when you should seek medical care. Great. And I, you know, in my mind, I, I keep thinking that a lot of um, the effects on health from climate probably have a disproportionate effect on different populations. And I know with Boston being a leader in some of the street medicine and healthcare for the homeless, again, this is a population I think of as being very highly affected. I'm curious, you know, there's this concept of environmental justice that I think people talk a lot about. And many clinicians have likely heard the term, but may not know exactly what it means, especially for our patients. Can you talk a bit about some of the disparities in climate-related health risks either you know in the united states or or more globally yeah i mean this is something i'm so passionate about and um i think climate is one of those things that really widens the disparities we have already um, in terms of racial and systemic inequity and the challenge with climate is those who are contributing the least emissions on a global level, um, or even an individual level, those really relying on public transit and some of these other things, are affected the most. And that is really a direct consequence of longstanding legacies of disproportionate access to systems that will set you up for success. I think for like a direct example, like urban heat islands, disproportionately affect communities of color um, and the disproportionate exposure to extreme heat in these urban settings has been linked to historical and structurally racist housing known as redlining. Um, so physicians being aware of this and advocating for policies that can help dismantle these inequities is really important. Kind of thinking through like geographically based on where you live the threats are different um, and income disparity as well as racial and ethnic disparities really like widens your access to your ability to adapt to some of these things. So not only is your exposure disproportionate, but your ability to deal with that exposure is disproportionate. And so I think that's why it's so crucial that climate justice and environmental justice is at the forefront of these conversations as we work towards climate solutions and adaptations for our communities to help empower those who are most vulnerable. And I think that kind of translates on the global level too, right? Like developed versus developing countries, um, developing nations often lack the resources to adapt to and recover from climate health risks. And indigenous communities and island nations are so reliant on natural resources and they're also at extreme risk. And so it sounds like, you know, a lot of like the environmental justice work is really trying to help mitigate a lot of these disparities that, that are widening and inequalities that are widening because of climate changes. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, I th kind of think of it as like environmental racism is what causes the disparity and environmental justice is the response to that of trying to level this field and bring people to a place where we're more resilient as a whole. 
Yeah. So on the the topic of kind of environmental justice and, and working to kind of mitigate some of these disparities, are there examples of where this has been successful or things that you're excited about that are kind of an optimistic sign of um, where environmental justice can be uh, you know, successful in working? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it is an exciting time and that we're all kind of thinking about climate much more and more openly and really recognizing that this is impacting us um, on a large scale. And so um, the Justice 40 initiative, which is part of the governmental effort to tackle the climate crisis here um, and abroad, is actually delivering for at least 40% of the benefits within that package to disadvantaged communities who have been affected by environmental racism um, and other kind of disproportionate burdens that these populations experience um, in terms of environmental hazards. So that's a really exciting initiative because there should be funding really dedicated to lifting these communities up um, and making sure that they're at the forefront of um, climate adaptation strategy or other environmental um, investment in the communities. And, um, you know, I I say that to share kind of an exciting time and, um, you know, for us to move forward in this space. And I recognize that sometimes climate is kind of folded into feeling like a controversial topic. Um, A lot of times when I'm teaching about how to integrate climate into clinical spaces, people are hesitant to do so. They feel like we're trusted voices because we don't engage in some of these more polarizing issues. And I think my pushback to that is like health is really a unifier. We've seen that. and that it really resonates with families as framing climate as a health issue can bring people of all backgrounds um, to the table. And I think that we use some of these skills with vaccine hesitancy, and I kind of encourage families or providers to stretch that muscle when bringing up climate of like really reading the room, seeing where people are at, maybe bringing a climate connection and seeing how people feel, and then just kind of seeing where that conversation goes. Um, And then always kind of coming back to, we are both here for your child and trying to have them be as healthy as possible. And that unifier can um, be a great ground for these conversations. I love that. I love thinking of health as as the unifier. And and I appreciate your comments on, you know, sometimes you know, politics or, or people's upbringings or philosophy or, or diff, diverse perspectives can make some of these conversations more challenging or, you know, create some discomfort and and trying to lean into that and, you know, approach the problem. I feel like there's a uh, therapy initiative or strategy of the triangles where you're trying to address the problem together, not at each other when there's a disagreement. And I, I think, you know, approaching that we're all on the same page of trying to optimize healthcare and being okay with some discomfort or um, difficulty in having the discussions, but not avoiding them because we're trying to, you know, do important things that 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 help people. Yeah, and highlighting that like we're trying to do our job to share the science for their child's benefit, um, and that the only way to really provide comprehensive evidence-based care is to really start learning about how climate is impacting your patients and integrating it. And so you're doing it in- injustice to your patients by ignoring this topic because it is affecting them. Yeah, I think it's a great call for action. I love that. Well, maybe let's uh, let's keep going with the case a little bit. It's just a, a small second part to the case. So our lovely MS4, Kate, has listened to this podcast and is feeling ready to, to start taking action and be a, a voice for change and trying to figure out what she can do within her community as well as on a larger scale. I would love to hear if you have any knowledge of things that hospitals and health centers can do to both reduce their climate impact and become more resilient to climate change as you know an institution as well as affecting change on a larger scale. Yeah, so um, I'm glad you bring up the kind of the hospital sustainability question um, because emissions from healthcare account for almost 5% of emissions wow. globally. I believe it's 4.6. Um, and the US healthcare contribution is much higher, closer to 8.5%. So, um, in many ways, we are part of this problem. And becoming knowledgeable about this and pushing your healthcare 
institution to take a hard look at themselves and see where they can be sustainable um, is really important. So there have been amazing kind of progress in this space. Healthcare Without Harm is a great resource here that kind of has an abundance of resources to learn about hospital sustainability, whether that's waste reduction, use of different anesthetics that have lower carbon footprints, kind of promoting public transportation or plant-forward diets, recognizing the impact of meat consumption is kind of all ways to decrease the carbon footprint. Um, And then also kind of divesting and investing with climate in mind. So kind of divesting from fossil fuels is probably the number one thing we can do as a society to really kind of get off of this source that's contributing to so much trouble. Um, And really investing in your research and supporting clinicians and others um, and bringing climate into healthcare is important. So whatever you can do to engage with one another um, within your hospital and then bring that to the leadership can be really, really helpful. Um, And I think kind of as an individual, it's a lot of those things on a smaller scale, right? So that think global act local concept of trying to practice what you preach and trying to find ways to decrease your emissions in your everyday life. I think in the patient scenarios, I'm very hesitant to pitch climate as something that my patients and families need to solve. I think that that is not the message and really needs to come from the top down. And instead, I bring climate conversations in with families as ways to protect their health and focus on their health. And then if families share that they are interested in making more of an individual impact than kind of sharing those ways to do so um, and really framing those things as like a co-climate and health benefit. So plant-forward diets are healthier um, and also healthier for the planet. And so whatever you can do to kind of increase that and highlight that dual benefit um, is really helpful. I, uh, I appreciate that you made the point of it's, it doesn't feel like it should be on the patient's to, it's not our place to tell patients how they should be addressing climate change. We, our role is to help them advance their health. And so being a partner in that conversation of helping them make that connection and figure out what they can do to advance the health. And then ideally it kind of has this positive feedback loop to be more sustainable in a general sense. Yeah. And I think in the spirit of environmental justice, right, I don't think it's fair for families who are already dealing with so much and so much is out of their control to then add this other insurmountable seemingly problem to their plate that's really kind of come from many other sources of inequity. And so I think when sharing ways to adapt to things, being sure that that guidance is keeping environmental justice needs in the forefront, like finding things that are free or um, accessible to all and tailoring that to the individual person is much more effective. And I think like all things in medicine, like the more you know your community and the more individualized you're able to make your recommendations, the more powerful they are um, in that physician patient or clinician patient relationship. Shalini, I know that you do some really interesting work in this space, and I definitely want to take advantage of you being here to hear a little bit more about the Boston Children's Hospital's Pediatric Environmental Health Center. I'd love to hear what you guys do and how you guys are working on climate-related issues. Yeah, so um, the Pediatric Environmental Health Center at Boston Children's is a clinical program um, where we see children for environmental exposures um, in clinic. Most of our children come with lead exposure, elevated lead levels or lead poisoning, and are led by the amazing Marissa Hopman, who did the lead episode for you all, um, and Alan Wolf, our co-directors there. So while we see a lot of patients with lead poisoning, we also see children with other environmental exposures like mold or kind of as we learn more about PFAS or forever chemicals, you know, people with exposures or contaminated water supplies, what does that mean for my child's health? Um, And we help them kind of navigate that as part of the medical workup and as well as also the advocacy arm when we need to, to get plug them into the right spaces. We're also part of this larger PESU program, which is the Pediatric Environmental Health Specialty Units, which is a federal program where there's 10 regions in the U.S., um, and we are serve Region 1, which covers all of New England. And so there, we really work to provide education for communities and 
um, health professionals on environmental health and support them kind of as needs arise to really be that environmental health expert consultation that providers can lean on um, since so much of this is not kind of covered in our training. In terms of climate work, Marissa Hoppen and I are working on trying to develop a clinical elective alongside the Harvard Medical School work to integrate climate into their curriculum, um, which is an exciting time to have pediatric trainees be able to come rotate with us and learn more about environmental health and how climate is integrated within our work, but also connecting to other climate champions in other areas. Because climate is something that really affects everyone, it's really cool to start meeting these climate champions in different spaces, like cardiologists, allergists, pulmonologists. How are they thinking about this issue and integrating it into their field? Um, so it's nice to kind of connect with one another as we develop this program, as well as hopefully improve the training of our amazing trainees that come through our programs. Um, and then we're also, I mentioned the environmental screening program that we're doing with the um, Primary Care Center. It's been a really lovely project that started when I was a fellow where we've proactively are asking patients pri prior to their asthma visits a variety of environmental questions to assess their exposures. The providers are notified that um, ahead of time before their visit, and they're able to address those during their clinical time with resources. Um, we received some pilot funding from the Asthma Allergy Foundation of America in New England to be able to actually like buy physical resources to deal with some of these hazards, whether that's pests or mold within their home. So that's been really cool to be a part of. And then the climate prescription program as well, just developing educational tools um, to foster some of these conversations in the clinical space that we hope to expand over time. Love this. And I think it's so nice, again, just normalize this as a like, regular part of medical training and medical practice and whether it's changes in, uh, again, kind of the weather and patterns or just being more aware of environmental allergens and, and effects on, on every level of, of health is awesome. For people who are listening to this episode that want to play a more direct role in addressing climate change that you know want to be be climate health champions are there ways that you can see people becoming more involved or anything that you think can kind of help people go to the next level after listening to this episode and really become more experts in integrating this into their their care yeah, I mean, I think it really depends where you're at. If this is what you're passionate about and you really want this to be your focus, I think depending on your level of training, there's so many ways to get engaged. Um, so for medical students, there's the Med Medical Students for Sustainable Future, um, an amazing network where students are really leading and pushing their programs to engage on climate and update their medical curriculum. Um, it's been amazing what trainees have been able to do to really ask for this um, from their medical school and training programs has been much more effective than um, you know faculty trying to weave it in. So that's been really cool to see. Um, it shows you the power of your voice um, and advocating. For pediatric trainees, um, something you can get involved in through the AAP, um, there's a climate advocates network that's led nationally by Dr. Lori Byron, she's amazing. And there's a climate advocate for all 50 states. And you could reach out to your state to figure out who that is and see if you can connect with them. And um, we're a really friendly group. We meet on a monthly basis and people give talks about different work they're doing. It's super inspiring um, and can help you figure out how to get more involved. And then the Pesty Network is also just an amazing group of environmental champions and educators. And um, a big part of what we do is trying to foster the pipeline and um, get more people in this space because more hands on deck, the better. So I'm um, reaching out to your PESI to see what opportunities there are. I think the power of a mentor is um, not to be understated. I felt really lost um, when I was in training. I felt like I was like the individual Lorax at my residency trying to plug climate and everything and getting a bunch of blank stares. And um, it took kind of having more time in my third year to plan it rotation at Boston Children's actually with the environmental health team to be like, what is a career in environmental health? And the people I met there were so amazing and are now my colleagues and I did my fellowship through them. So I think just kind of finding your community will take you really far if this is what you want to do. And for others who like are recognize that climate's a health issue and want to integrate it, but don't exactly know how, I think just start anywhere 
it's better than nowhere. Like just pick one little thing, whether that's a sentence that you add to your anticipatory guidance or a check you're gonna give yourself when you're going through a patient's chart of like, oh, how could I think about climate here? I think once you start to see it somewhere, you start to see it everywhere. So um, it's just that initial inertia that's often the hardest. I love that I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, I think any, yeah, I think again, reintroducing this in all parts of, of healthcare is such a big lesson, I think, that I'm going to take away from this podcast. We, we've talked about a lot of things today as far as where climate change is, is coming from, how it affects health care, how environmental justice can help address some of the disproportional disparities that are imposed from from climate change and, and some of the systems in place that, that made things worse and even steps to, to take um, for people who are, are interested in continuing to pursue this. Um, but let me ask, you know, what, what are your main take-home points, you think, for listeners? If, uh, what, what do you hope people walk away from this podcast knowing as, as kind of a, a good uh, a bullet take-home points? Yeah, I think just recognizing that the climate crisis is here um, and happening in real time and really is a public health crisis that impacts all aspects of our care um, and all of our patients um, is the biggest takeaway. And I think being able to recognize that will hopefully inspire people to engage and better understand what's happening um, and then start asking more questions to get us where we need to be to advocate for our patients on a larger scale, to prepare them, to protect their health, to get us to evidence-based standards of how to deal with some of these threats on a larger level. And anything else you'd like to plug, some resources that uh, we should send our listeners to, to to check out for more information? Yeah, so um, certainly the National PESU program is something that we always like to um, share with others, PEH. SU.net um, and then our Boston Children's Hospital.org slash PEHC will bring you to our Environmental Health Center page where you can see the climate prescription program that we've developed that's now co-sponsored by Eco America, available in English and Spanish, and kind of is hopefully a helpful educational handout to start some of these conversations. The other thing I wanted to plug was um, this maintenance of certification project I worked on through climate advocates with the AAP. So this was a collaborative project that we worked on together, realizing that like pediatricians really need to be engaged on climate and folding this into anticipatory guidance, but we also need support in doing that. And um, this is a really cool project that's now approved by the American Board of Pediatrics for MOC4 continuing education credit. And it has two modules. The first gives you like a foundation primer on how climate impacts child health. And the second gives you a communication primer on how to talk about that in clinic. And then it comes with a QI project template where you can track how often you're integrating this into your well child visits in primary care. So if you submit all the data, you can get board certification for it, but you can also just do the modules for education if you want to access the content. And so I'm happy to share the links for those for anyone who may be interested. It's a really nice resource and would not be possible without partners Karina Meher, Becca Phillips-Born, and Andrew Lewandowski and Lori Byron. So we're excited to see it take shape. That sounds amazing and like such a great next step for people who also feel like Loraxes and are trying to figure out what to do next. They can <laughs> go uh, definitely pursue some of those resources and we will be sure to put those in the show notes um, for listeners who want to continue their education and figure out ways to implement it within their clinical settings. This is wonderful. A lot of great resources, a lot of great pearls, I think, for people at all levels and all different worlds, uh, subspecialties and primary care training, all of the above. So this was such a great episode. Um, Shalini, thank you for, for sharing your time, your expertise, for, for joining us tonight. We're so grateful. And I, th- I think it's going to be a great episode. So so thank you for, for coming on, teaching us and, and teaching us on, on the Cribsiders. Thanks so much for having me. This has been another episode of the Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Catch show notes and sign up for our weekly knowledge food formula feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge and do that. We need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player or send us an email at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks tonight to our producer for this episode, Sydney Ingle, our showrunner, Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks for joining. I've been Justin Lee Burke. And I've been Sydney Ingle. Thank you and good night.